Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she has been a social worker and a political aide, the daughter of immigrants, a reality TV star. Now, Honey Mahogany is the new head of San Francisco's powerful Democratic Central Committee. We are thrilled to have Honey Mahogany here. She is the very first transgender person to run the powerful local party. We'll talk with her about her agenda for that job and the state of queer rights in 2021. But first, Marisa... Hi. Can you tell how happy we are? We're actually in the same room together for the first time since March (laughs) of 2020. Um, In our new studio. How did you get out of Zoom? I crawled out. I poked my way out and I left like a trail of snacks for my kids on the way out the door because <laughs> they're so used to being able to interrupt political breakdown. Um, so like Juan and Diego are going to be following the trail yeah. of snacks to <laughs> Back our to office Maribosa. here. So and th- not, not only are we together, but we're in a brand new building yes. that is not quite done. Right. Uh, but and I great. know she doesn't like this, but can I just give a shout out to Katie McMurrin, our engineer, who has spent right. the last year like cutting out my dog barking and my kids screaming and who knows what is happening at Scott's house. I think it was quieter there. but yeah, Pretty quiet. Yeah, it's been a year. So we're yeah. here and KQED will be like in a few months having a grand opening and hopefully everyone will be here all vaccinated well, and, and the happy. the thing we do miss and have missed is having guests in the studio. Right. And our guest, Honey Mahogany, who we'll hear from in just a moment, is, is on Zoom. Uh, she's kind of here. but She's kind of <laughs> totally. here. We can see her. Hey, honey. Uh, but we'll be getting to her in a moment. But first, there's actually some news uh, yeah, today. Okay, let's in, get yeah, serious. I know, yeah, let's moderately serious here. Uh, the Attorney General, Rob Bonta, in San Francisco today with the governor to file an appeal of the decision late last week, uh, striking down California's assault weapons ban, which had been in place for like 32 years. And I think what really struck a chord with Newsom and Bonta and many others who support gun control is the tone of his ruling where he compares an AR-15 with a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, I mean, everyone's talking about that. I actually don't know that that's the most fair thing to get angry about. I think his intention there was to prove how useful it is and how many uses, although that... But he also said more people have died with knives, I think, than he said, AR-15s. which is Yes, which is like... Maybe true, but actually I went through the data. You can't actually make that. The The one that I thought was really out there was when he said more people have died from the COVID vaccine than from AR-15s in California, which is like absolutely not true because nobody's died from the COVID vaccine in California. But 
or at least nobody's been proven to. Um, so this is a big deal for the state. It's potentially a big deal for the United States if SCOTUS takes this up, which a lot of people on both sides either are fearing or hoping for. Um, and I think that, you know, for us as political people, there's a lot of places on KQED we've done the analysis on the legal stuff. But, I mean, what do you think? Heading into this recall, good, bad? I think it's, a, it's clearly a good winner for the governor. That's why he was here today uh, and made a big deal of being here with the attorney general. Usually these things are sort of quietly filed right. in an office somewhere, but uh, this had a you know, a press conference. He called the judge a stone-cold ideologue. Um, and he has been, in fact. He has struck down other uh, gun control well, laws. He clearly likes guns. Like, it's you read yeah. the opinion and it's... Yeah. I mean, I will say, he called it a the, the assault weapons ban a failed experiment. And, you know, you can argue about that. But clearly, there are a lot of people with those weapons. Oh, yeah. And some of them get them in other states and bring them in. Uh, but, you know, there are just a lot of guns in there's, the state and the country. And there's it, like... Like, I don't know, some 20 million guns in California, like half as many as the people. There's basically a gun for every man, woman, woman, and child in the United States. Um, And that's part of the case this judge made is like the cat's out of the bag. If this is so common, it can't possibly be illegal, which, again, like we could we could we could spin out those analogies for a while. But. I do think that, yeah, Newsom ran on gun control. He wrote Prop 63, which was one of the more recent gun control measures. Um, I think from a political perspective, this does have the potential to really fire up his base. I think on the policy, it's something that people like him and the AG really fear because I do think the Supreme Court seems to kind of be itching to take up some of these bigger gun control questions. Yeah, I I think this is an issue that fires up both bases. Uh, There's obviously a lot of Republicans who also feel very strongly about the Second Amendment and the right to have a gun. and yeah, as you said, I'm sure, you know, the governor and a lot of other Democrats are going to be fundraising off of the decision and the appeal and, the you know, the issue of guns in California. So we're definitely going to be following that one. Um, a little further south of the border, uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, former uh, U.S. senator from here, of course, went to Guatemala and Mexico this week. She met with presidents of both countries, uh, along with some entrepreneurs and community activists in those places, which I think is fair to say Mike Pence would not have done. <laughs> Uh, They did not make the news, though, of course. I mean, and I think this trip just shows how tough a position Kamala Harris is in in this vice presidency. I mean, obviously, Biden gave her this mandate in the hopes of her kind of burnishing her credentials, um, you know, her international credentials. and, And I mean, I think on the substance, tackling this intransigent issue. But I mean, she's taken it from all sides, right? Like the 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 left is mad because she basically told asylum seekers, "Don't come here in Guatemala," and, the, and you'll be turned back if you right. Do. The right is mad because she hasn't gone to the border yet, and you know, whatever they're going to be mad no matter what. I think. Yeah. But but I think you know, I think one of the reasons it struck a lot of people her comments about "Don't come here" is her own identity, right? Nobody expected any of this from Mike Pence, but Kamala Harris is the daughter of immigrants. She is black. She is Indian. She comes from a lot of the communities that really have sort of personal experiences with immigration and her own family does. And I think that, you know, it's it's a tough place to be because her job right now is to represent the administration. It it is. And to be fair, uh, Joe Biden has kept in place quietly some of the immigration, the border policies that Trump had put in place. I mean, I think it was not a good look to have all of these migrants uh, sort of uh, at the border rushing to kind of come in, take advantage of a new president or, you know, what he what they thought perhaps would be easier policies in getting in. And I think with her comments this week in Guatemala and Mexico, you have to think that it's one of those issues that they're they're worried about, number one. And I think that it probably the polling would suggest that they uh, should be. They should be. They should be. And I think, you know, 
immigration is one of those issues where there's, yeah, people oppose the wall. People love the dreamers. They're in favor of legal immigration and all kinds of things, especially here in California where that that issue has been long fought and won by immigrants. But across the country, you know, in, 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 in House races coming up and Senate races, you know, it cuts a little differently. Yeah. And I mean, Kamala Harris is trying to put this in the context of the multi-decades long challenges around poverty, corruption, drug wars, all the things that are the reason people come here from Central America. But that kind of nuance is not like what cable news traffics in. And so I think that's why you see, you know, this dust up. I think the question is obviously going to be moving forward. How does she handle this? And can she make progress? Yeah, well, she's got that and voting rights uh, on her plate. (laughs) Just a couple things. Just a couple things. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Democratic Party activist Honey Mahogany. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos, literally with her in the studio. Hey, Uh, we're joined by the new chair of the city's Democratic Party, Honey Mahogany. She was the first San Franciscan to appear on RuPaul's Drag Race, by the way. Spoiler alert, she did not win. We will talk with her about that. She's also a legislative aide at San Francisco City Hall and somehow so much more. Honey Mahogany, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Happy Pride Month. Yes, it's Pride Month. It's also the city's budget season. Oh, yeah. Those two <laughs> things go together. Sexy. Like, <laughs> my partner's birthday, my our anniversary. Yeah. So many things oh. to celebrate. Father's Day. <laughs> we wanna, but we, we want to ask you first, because you have such a distinctive name, Honey Mahogany. Tell us uh, how you how you got that name. Ooh, that's a good story. I mean, I, you know, the, the honest to God truth is that when I was a young dragling, I was struggling with finding a drag name, but um, I had some leftover makeup from when I did um, um, theater in high school and it was by Revlon and the two colors, the foundation were honey and mahogany. And I thought that that would be a good name. It is a good name. <laughs> I love that. Did that you toy with really mahogany happy. honey? I thought about it and I was like, no, you can't have a first name longer than your last name. That's weird. Yeah. And honey's like, I like honey. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, you were born Alpha Mulageta. Is that right? Yeah. To Ethiopian parents. Um, 
Talk to us about your childhood. Your your parents came to the States from Ethiopia, I believe, bef- a few years before you were born. Yes, they did. Um, they came here in 1979, I believe. Okay. And so were they, and tell, like, why did they come to the States? They were asylum seekers or refugees? Yeah, so my dad was actually um, a student in medical school in Greece, and he was on an Ethiopian student scholarship. And when there there was a new regime that took over, a communist regime, um, he was a student organizer that, you know, was a part of a a club that was against the new government. And um, they revoked his citizenship which meant that he lost his scholarship and was no longer able to stay in Greece. So he emigrated here as an asylum seeker. And then my mom came with him and they got married here in San Francisco. Wow. And you, I think, grew up in the sunset, which is uh, quite a ways from the Castro in so many ways. I know you've spent a lot of time in the Castro, but what was it like growing up in, you know, on that side of town, which, you know, not so much anymore, but used to be much more conservative than the rest of the city, or at least a lot of the city. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was very quiet. I mean, I come from a very, well, I shouldn't say my family's conservative. They're all Democrats. And um, I would say, especially my mom is actually pretty liberal. But, um, it, you know, if the being the child of immigrants, my parents um, were very religious. They, um, you know, Ethiopia has a very deep-rooted um, history of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, um, which predates European Christianity. Um, and, you know, so from that perspective, it was very conservative socially. And I was very sheltered. I mean, I think today still, I think the sunset is very sheltered from the rest of the city, even though San Francisco was this huge gay mecca for, you know, decades before I was born, I didn't really get to experience very much of that. Um, but, you know, I, I will say I really had a great time um, as a child in the sense that I um, had lots of family who also joined my parents when they immigrated here. And we all kind of grew up together in the same neighborhood and the same building at one point. And um, I don't know, I, I, I had a really great time. That's good to hear. My dad grew up in the sunset far before you. He had a good time, too. But it was a different world in the 50s, I think, than in the 80s. Um, Well, when we were researching this, we noticed you did go to Catholic school. I think more traditional Catholic schools and then a Jesuit high school. I mean, obviously, you're out now. It's, you know, you've probably come a long way on on your journey in a lot of ways. But, like, what, what were the best and worst parts about that Catholic education for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just interesting. I mean, I, I you know, obviously, there was... Uh, levels of homophobia and, you know, um, uh, things like that uh, in school. I think that that just exists or has existed. It's a product of its time. I don't think it had anything to do with me going to Catholic school, to be honest. Mm. Um, I actually felt, I think, the racial disparity more. I mean, I remember, especially in grade school, um, I went to St. Gabriel's in the sunset. I think I was like, one of the only black people at one point in the entire school, like K through eight. And then there was a biracial kid that was there. And then there was, um, I think, a Nigerian kid that came in at like sixth or seventh grade. So that actually was, I think, more of a big issue for me. Um, And then when I went to high school, I went to St. Ignatius, and um, which is also in the sunset. It uh, was pretty liberal, I would say, once I got there. I mean, there were people there that were openly gay um, at the time. I don't think there was... there Those was teachers any... or were they students? Students. There was some rumors about some teachers and that got 
that got a little hairy because, you know, they could be fired. I mean, you know, being in a Catholic school, a Catholic institution, um, if you were an, if you were a woman and you weren't married and you got pregnant and they found out you could be fired. I mean, there's, yeah. there's all this really, it was really strict. I will say my high school had, um, and this actually got them in trouble um, a while back, but they used to have a Glee CLC, which was basically um, CLCs or Christian life communities. Um, but the Glee CLC was, um, like a gay and les basically a gay lesbian students alliance. Oh, interesting. Um, how did yeah. you first get into drag? And I'm wondering how did your family, how did your parents uh, respond to that? How old were you? Um, I first got into drag when I was uh, in college. Uh, I de I generally um, I definitely made the choice to leave San Francisco to go to college so I could grow as a person and explore and figure out what was going on with me. And um, so that's when I came out in college. And I first got into drag when I, uh, a, my, a friend asked me to be in their film and they said, you know, I'm asking you to be in this role because you're the only guy that I think would kind of look good as a girl. Um, and um, I did it and I had a great time doing it. And I guess the rest is really history. Um, my parents, um, actually the way that I came out to my parents was that um, I wasn't, I didn't actually come out, I was outed. Um, I had a family member who had access to my Flickr account or Pixter, I don't remember what. <laughs> one of those dead photo accounts. My right, exactly. You know, one of those things. And um, I guess I had some pictures on there of me in drag in one of the folders that I, you know, didn't even think about. And, you know, he found it and ended up sharing it with family members. And so they all found out that way. And that was uh, pretty traumatizing. Um, you know, my family was really hurt by that. It was very dramatic. My dad threatened to, you know, kill himself at the time. And, you know, uh, I ended up actually uh, leaving the country because um, my parents asked me to, you know, go back to, to go to Ethiopia to get away from negative influences in quotes. Um, and I knew that that wasn't gonna really change anything, but I felt like I could do this for my family. And while I was there in Ethiopia, I'm actually really glad that it happened because I, you know, got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And, you know, while I was there really um, did to spend time in a country, you know, that I originated from. Right. And ended up actually getting a, an internship while I was there at UNAIDS, which was really interesting. So it sounds like one of the things that kind of attracted you to the drag scene was political activism and like the fact that drag queens can play this, you know, sort of powerful, I think, role in being leaders in a community. Um, I mean, is that fair? Is that is that something that you or was this? I mean, obviously now, you know, we're looking at your Zoom. You identify as she, they. So like it's been a journey, as I said. <laughs> Right. No, I mean, I, I actually don't think that I did drag because it was political, uh, although I think that I maybe kept doing it because it was political. I think I did drag because it was a way to express something that was within myself in a way that um, was available to me. And in, 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 and and for me, drag was really a, a celebration of the feminine. And I'd, I've always been super effeminate or feminine, even as a child. And I was always told that was wrong. And, you know, to me, that was just a part of sort of this culture of misogyny and, you know, um, you know, hatred of everything feminine and of women. And I, and I admired women so much. And, you know, and I, I thought that the feminine qualities I had was, were really positive. And so drag was a way for me to celebrate that and heighten that. And um, that's why I started doing drag. And then I think that um, when I came to San Francisco and 
really got involved in the drag scene here, that's when I realized that drag is more than just about performing as a woman, but is actually can be about uh, broadcasting a message or making a statement and um, has a deep rooted history and activism here. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Honey Mahogany, queer activist and the first black transgender woman elected office. She's the new chair of San Francisco's Democratic Central Committee. Um, I want to ask you about uh, just a few years ago. Uh, I was uh, actually watching a lecture you had given at Sonoma State from, I think, 2017. And Look you <laughs> and you, uh, you know, you said you. In terms of pronoun, I think a question came up about pronouns. And you said, you know, I answer to he, I answer to she, you know, whatever works. It was very fluid and very, uh, and I assume now you don't feel that way. You you are a woman, trans woman. What was, um, t- tell me about your, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. The look you gave me just suggests that I'm wrong about that, which I am sure you're going to tell, <laughs> tell me about. Tell us how you Tell us about Well, I was going to, I was going to try and see how, if I should correct you. Um, no, Please. Um, I identify as non-binary. So I don't really, I mean, I don't use he pronouns just because I feel like they are inauthentic, but I, I use she and I use they. Um, I, I identify as non-binary binary femme. I mean, I, I identify with women, um, but I, I also, um, I also really, I think, identify more as trans, mm-hmm. um, someone that isn't within the gender binary. Um, you know, embracing both sides of myself. Tell, tell me, is there an, like an attitude at all about a trans person doing drag? I mean, uh, you know, typically drag used to be men, you know, dressing up as women, and then some women started dressing up as men, you know, for uh, somebody who identifies as trans. How how does that work? Well, I would say that that's actually not true. I mean, I think that, you know, back, if you look back at like Shakespearean text, you know, the word drag comes from dressed as girl. And I, and I think that that is, that is true. And that is very literal. But I think throughout history, we've actually had um, people of uh, both genders, um, performing in drag. And then uh, also a lot of trans people were in, were perceived as being in drag because we didn't have the terminology around being around trans. And actually in, um, in the South, especially in the pageantry system, I think that there are people who, um, you know, get, you know, breast implants and do all these other things and are considered drag queens. But, you know, like, where does the, where is the line? I think that sometimes that that can get blurry. I think here in San Francisco, we have a a very deep rooted history of not just trans women performing as drag queens, but also of cisgendered women performing as drag queens. And that goes back to the coquettes, um, but also certainly to people who are, you know, still around today, like um, Phonique and um, Hoke Mama Swamp and um, so many others um, that are, you know, cisgendered women who perform in drag. Yeah. And I'll, I remember moving to San Francisco and like seeing the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence for the first time and be like, oh, you can have a, a beard boom, boom. and still be like, you know. Um, so I want to talk about politics because that's, you know, our show and why you're here. So it seems like some of this came out of your activism, but also you're, you you were a social worker um, when you were younger. And it, it seems like your first real foray into like more organized politics and, and, and organizing was around the Stud Collective. Um, so this was 2016. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like for people outside of San Francisco who have no idea what the Stud is. Or was. How dare they not know? Um, So the stud, (laughs) the stud is, um, was, I should say, because we just recently closed due to COVID, um, San San Francisco's oldest um, remaining LGBT nightlife venue. And um, 
Yeah, uh, it was actually the first place that um, I kind of went to um, to start performing in drag here in San Francisco. Um, and one of the first places that I just sort of walked into alone uh, in terms of a gay bar. Um, it's a place that I think is responsible for a lot of um, San Francisco's drag culture and aesthetic. Um, it has been a real cultural creator and I think artistic incubator for the city of San Francisco. And, and, and I think really, you know, truly, you know, the country. Um, it uh, was threatened with closure three years ago. And, you know, unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, um, 17 of us got together and formed a cooperative and we actually created the first um, cooperative we run LGBT nightlife venue in the country. And we saved the stud from closure, took it over, revamped, uh, not really revamped it. We kept it in the same sphere that it has always been. Um, just to go back a little bit, uh, the stud um, is in the Soma, the, the South of Market. Um, the stud is in Soma, which is the South of Market, and uh, it is historically the LGBT leather district, um, which is a very, uh, I would say, like a masculine, kink-centered sort of culture. Um, but the stud was this sort of oasis where everyone was welcome, no matter what you looked like. You could be a hair fairy, you could be a drag queen, you could be a twink or a muscle Castro clone. Everyone was welcome, and so we've really made sure that that spirit remained alive. And you know, we hope to steward it for generations to come. We just need to find a new place. Well, I want to ask you a question about your new role as chair of the Democratic Party in San Francisco. What is your what's your agenda? What do you want to get done? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that the goal, you know, the San Francisco Democratic Party is really here to help um, to help really guide San Francisco voters on how to vote, right? I mean, we are elected by the people and are representative of, uh, of the city, and we take the time to really examine ballot measures and candidates and vote and endorse them, and then we send out lots of mailers. Another big part of the party, um, party's uh, duties is voter registration and really doing outreach to make sure that every um, every citizen is able and registered to vote. Um, but additionally, San Francisco has an opportunity to make some really strong political statements. I think a lot of people look to San Francisco um, for direction. Um, we are a progressive beacon, a beacon of hope. Um, people love to use the word beacon when they talk about San Francisco. Um, <laughs> Uh, right. Um, and so I think we have an opportunity to make a statement on a lot of important things that are happening, not just locally, but um, nationally and, and sometimes even internationally. And I think that the rest of the country follows. How do you think about like your sort of the two hats you wear? Right. I mean, we mentioned you're also an aide to Matt Haney. You've done a lot of like work on the ground through that and your activism and your social work. But you're also this performer. You're a singer. Like, how do you think that that side of your personality and, and personhood is helping you when you think about politics? Well, I mean, I think that politics is a lot like being a performer. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, reading of speeches and a lot of a lot of that. But I think also it's about connection. It's about connecting with people and um, being able to meet people where, people where they're at and 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 take them somewhere, right? Um, and so I think that that's what politics is. It's about it's about connecting with people, hearing their stories, and um, being able to turn those those stories into um, policy and make make. Sort of make their dreams come true. So I, I, I think that, yes. Oh, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just taking okay. a breath to get ready to ask my next question. <laughs> you're so polite. You're like, as soon as sorry, you heard, I'm no, sorry. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to, to, to cut you off. But we are getting short on time. That's it. Yeah, no worries. Um, 
I would do want to ask you about RuPaul's Drag Race. You were on, I think, season five, and I think you were the first San Francisco drag queen to be on that show, which is extraordinary. I mean, I don't even know why it took so long, but um, what was that like? I, you know, I, we, as I said at the beginning, you didn't win, and I'm wondering, did your parents watch you on that show? What did they think? I don't know. No, I don't think that they did. I think that they, you know, I actually talked to my mom a lot about it, but I think that she was just not as comfortable engaging with me um, through drag. Um, I talked, like I said, I discussed it with her and I even like, you know, let her know that some things are going to come out on the show, but I don't think that she ever fully embraced it until much later. Hmm. Are you, um, I don't know, like, what? you're not the first reality TV star to run for office in California. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, is that, is? It, I noticed at the beginning when we brought it up, like, is, is it a thing that you now at this point are sort of hoping to leave behind? Because it, because I'm sure it follows you. It's, like, such a huge name. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know about leaving it behind. I mean, I think it's it's been a valuable part of my life and I've learned so many lessons from it. And, you know, it's definitely given me a platform that has been useful. Um, but I think that it's also just so, you know, I look back on it and it's like, those are really great memories. And it's also very disconnected from who I am right now and the things that I do. So I honor the memory. And also I, I also honor the fact that I've moved on. You know that Nancy Pelosi was also on RuPaul's Drag Race. I do. I was hosting a RuPaul's Drag Race party and um, yeah, we were watching it. And, do you identify yeah. with her in any way whatsoever? I mean, she's a party <laughs> like heavyweight in San Francisco Democratic politics. I mean, yes. I mean, she she technically, um, right. I mean, we serve on the same board together. Yeah. Um, she, you know, I have a lot of um, admiration for her because I think that she you know, uh, is like you said, a heavyweight in the Democratic Party and has done so much for our country, probably a lot of which we will never know. I mean, she's also one of the biggest fundraisers for the Democratic Party, which is, you know, no easy feat. Um, and um, I don't agree with her on all her policy decisions or all her um, all her ideas, but I, I will say that, you know, to be a woman and to be, you know, one of the most powerful women in the world, I think takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of brilliance. And so I commend her for that. Well, we don't really have time to get into it, but there is a chance she may not run for re-election, in which case the Democratic Central Committee is going to have a, a big job in terms of perhaps or not endorsing somebody who's going to run. And that you know that'll be a long list of people wanting the endorsement and that job. <laughs> And you know what I'm, I notice about Honey is you're very good at uh, the the politics of San Francisco at playing it well, <laughs> playing it well. Okay, well I I'll take it. I don't know what that means, but I'll take it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Honey Mahogany, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can see what kind of trouble I'm getting up to on Twitter. It's at Scott Schaefer. Happy Pride Month, everyone. Thanks for listening. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.